I'll invite you to turn with us to Psalm 100. We begin a new series this morning. Even as we've wrapped up a series, uh, a summer in the Psalms, uh, we will start this series uh, with a sermon in Psalm 100. As we look at the theme, we are His. We consider gospel principles for singleness, marriage, sex, parenting, and life together in the family of God. You'll turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 100. This is God's Word. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, And we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. Pray with me. Heavenly Father. We ask that you would abound to us with your kindness and that you would open your word up to us this morning that we might know you. We might know that the Lord is God. We are his. And that this knowledge would not be trapped in the cognitive portions of our being, but that it would spill out into all that we are and all that we do, we might serve and praise him with gladness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are beginning a new series. We would do something like this in RUF periodically, the the dating, sex, and marriage seminar. Here we're doing a sermon series on, on gospel principles for relationships, all relationships. Parenting relationships, marriage relationships, relationships that you have in the church with sing- those of you who are single, those of you who have roommates or classmates or whatever. We're going to look at what it means for us to be God's own people and how that spills out into every relationship. And I, I should caution you, and there's a little blurb printed in your bulletin to this effect, that, that we can't talk about all the things. We, we hope and we're convinced that these principles will apply to every relationship, no matter how dysfunctional it may even be, that you can find hope and maybe even healing as the Lord reveals these truths to you. But we recognize that there are going to be things that we, we can't cover, specifics to your situation that we might not be able to address in this general format. And so we encourage you, you don't have to to walk this path alone, talk to your elder, talk to your pastors. Uh, let us seek uh, to point you to Christ in the midst of whatever difficulties you are in, whether it's marriage difficulties or parenting difficulties or just life difficulties, that we might be able to assist you. We can't fix everything, but we can point you to the Lord God who is at work. But we turn here our attention then to Psalm 100. 
And as I was considering this, it occurred to me that every single wedding ceremony I have ever officiated has begun with Psalm 100. Not because there's anything particularly special about Psalm 100 and weddings or marriage, but that Psalm 100 calls our attention to the fundamental truth that ought to undergird every single relationship we have. In fact, it is that central truth. You can make the case that it's forgetting that truth, living counter to that truth, that is the source of any dysfunction in our relationship. So what is it? Psalm 100 is what theologians call a, a chiasm. It, it, it starts on the outside and works its way into a, a single point in the middle. So verse 1 and verse 5 parallel one another. Verse 2 and verse 4, and you get to the point in verse 3, and that is the, the central thing. It's sort of like an X, or the Greek letter chi looks like an X. We're getting this central point, the bullseye, if you will. And it's this. This fundamental truth that ought to undergird all relationships. You've heard it already. We are His. It seems a simple idea, but it is a concept that when we neglect it, when we live counter to it, it invites all kinds of trouble. This concept, others, our friend um, Alan Noble, who shared at our Labor Day retreat last year, calls it by what we read in the, the Heidelberg Catechism, this truth that you are not your own. Or elsewhere, it's the doctrine of the Lordship of Christ. He and He alone is the Lord God of all. And it's that divine lordship over all that has implications for how we relate to one another, whether single or married, whether we are parents or children, whether we're in the church or out in the world, it is this truth that we are his, that Christ is Lord, ought to guide and instruct us in everything. And so we're going to begin this series with that fundamental truth and consider what Christ's lordship means for us in all our relationships. And we're going to look at three things this morning. And the first I want us to look at is this central truth that we are his. Verse 1 makes a bold claim that says, calls uh, for praise and a joyful noise to be made from all the earth. It's a bold claim that, that all of the earth belongs to God and, and owes him praise. But verse 3, this, this central verse of this psalm, does something even more spectacular. It raises up God's people, those made in his image, as, as especially his, the sheep of his pasture, his own people. That means something for us. For us to be especially His, for us to especially 
call upon Him as Lord, to call upon Him as God, means that we are, at the core of our beings, worshipers. Worship isn't simply an event you attend. It's not simply an act that you do. It's not simply a a, a ritual that you follow. Worship is at the heart and the core of what you are. It is your identity. You and I, we are worshipers. And we will worship something. But God, our creator, has called us to know that he is the Lord, that he is God, and to worship him and him alone. Is that how you live? Is it his kingdom and his glory that you are seeking to lift up in all that you are and all that you do in every relationship that you have? Whose kingdom are you really building? And are you sure? Jesus tells all sorts of parables about stewards. Stewards are those who are entrusted to care for something that belongs to someone else. And it is the wicked and deceitful steward that when the owner and the master leaves for a long trip, begins to live and act as if all that stuff belongs to him. And he mistreats the other servants that are under his care. He misuses the financial resources at his disposal. He indulges himself in his own needs and his own desires to make his own kingdom and sense of self and his own pleasure tantamount. It's a wicked and deceitful servant. But it is the faithful and wise steward that recognizes that no matter whether the master is present or not, now all that he has and all that's at his disposal was given to him to care for for someone else's sake. And you, made by God, in his image, called his people, you are stewards of all that he's given you. Not just of your financial resources. Not just of your possessions. Not just of your vocations, but of even the relationships he's entrusted to you. You are called to steward your spouse, your children, your parents, your co-workers, your friends, your neighbors, your roommates, because these are people that God has brought into your life and entrusted you with that you might, as a worshiper of the Lord, serve Him in those relationships. Work for His glory in those relationships and lift Him up as God and Lord of all. And so there's a principle there for all of our relationships that we should cling to. And it's this, healthy relationships are rooted in worship. Now you you might think, no, 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 you don't understand. My spouse is the most controlling person I've ever met. 
My problem in my relationship is my spouse. Or you have not met my parents. They are the most disorganized. They have, they hoard all this stuff. It's just a mess. And, and my problem is that I'm going to have to deal with all of that. And if my parents would just get their act together, we would get along a lot better. My problem is my parents. Problem is my children. They are so loud and disobedient and they run around and they're crazy and I'm exhausted and I don't have the time or the energy to worry about them anymore if they would just eat their vegetables and go to bed when I tell them to, then everything would be fine. That's my problem is my children. And and none of those things are true. The problem, the reason your relationships are dysfunctional at the core, despite the presenting problem, is that you have dysfunctional worship. Think about it. Think of some examples. How have you married people? sacrificed your spouse on the altar of your God. Maybe you've come home and you've had a busy day. You have helped all these people. You've had to solve all of these problems. People have come into your office and they're like, this thing just blew And you're like, that's not even my job. Why are you in my office? That's a different department. But you are a selfless individual, and so you help them, and you help this person, and you work hard, and all you want is to come home and have a few minutes of quiet and peace, have a cup of tea, and read the news, and just close your eyes and rest for a minute in calmness and comfort. But you walk in, and it's chaos. The dishes are overflowing in the sink. Someone left the water running in the bathroom. The children are running around. There is glitter everywhere. It is everywhere. And you look at your spouse and she is frazzled or he is frazzled, depending on who was home that day. And you lose it. All I ask, all I ask is to be able to come home and rest. And this is what I'm greeted with. And you have sacrificed your poor spouse on the altar of the God who is not the God of all, but is this idolatrous God of comfort and ease and pleasure that you have lifted up as preeminent in your heart. Or when we think about our children, and we think about them in terms of what they need to be for us, well-behaved, well-dressed, eating their vegetables, always saying, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, no, sir, no, ma'am, all those sorts of things. And, and we lose sight of what it means for us to lift up God as Lord in their lives. And we become so concerned with instilling in them valuing us and our needs and our commands and our rules and our structure that we neglect lifting up God as Lord. Children, though, they're perceptive. They see, they know what you really worship. Or we come into the church and inevitably conflict arises because you can't get this many people 
into the same room for long without somebody, probably the pastor, doing or saying something that's going to ruffle some feathers or upset you. But, it, but you can do it too. I'm not the only one. How do we then deal with it? What do we do? Oh, sometimes we just lash out and we just lose our temper and we're like, and we wag our finger and we say the things and or we withdraw. We're just like, I just can't deal with those people anymore. I got to protect myself from them because they are just so needy. I'm not needy, but they're needy. And we don't remember that we are God's people, the sheep of his pasture. And maybe he's calling us all to be together for his plans and purposes. What does it look like for us to live out the truth that we are? It looks like us living not for ourselves, but for him. And that's the second thing I want us to see as we consider verses 2 and 4, is this understanding that worship is serving the Lord as God in all of life. Not just showing up on Sunday mornings, not just going to Bible study. It Worship is all that we are and all that we do. And sometimes we do it well, and sometimes we do not. And these stated and formal times of worship are set apart to reorient us and remind us of what this psalm tells us. That we are to serve the Lord with gladness. That we are to come into His presence with singing. That, that it is worth overflowing with thanksgiving as we enter his gates. We are to give thanks to him, to bless his name, or to say it another way. It is in serving the Lord, it is in living lives of worship, that ultimately we find what it means to truly live glad, blessed, thankful lives. I know it doesn't always feel that way. Pastor's always recruiting people to serve in the nursery and in children's ministry. Yes, he is, and he's not going to stop until there's a wait list a mile long. It feels mundane. It feels burdensome. It feels not always glad and happy and something worth overflowing with blessing and thankfulness about. Yet, God's word tells us again and again and again and again that true joy, that true happiness, that lasting and eternal glory that we seek is not found outside of worshiping the Lord rightly, living and serving Him rightly. And in fact, that is not a a heavy burden. The Lord does not give us a a wearying yoke to carry. It's restful and joyful and glad. But sin, sin is fundamentally antisocial. I'm borrowing this from Paul Tripp. In fact, most of what I'm talking about, I've borrowed from Paul Tripp and other sources. They're printed in your bulletin there. If you want to look them up, read them for yourself. 
But he brings up this point. Sin, sin is fundamentally antisocial. It, it alienates. It alienates you from God. It alienates you from one another. But it's not just in that. It's that sin is ultimately self-focused. Sometimes in the past, hopefully the more distant past, when I've decided that I need to do my own laundry, I come to the washing machine and I open it up and there's laundry already in there. And it's not the me doing laundry that needs to be in the distance past. It's this part. And I will take it out, paying no mind to what it is, and throw it in the dryer and turn it on and put my stuff in and thereby shrink a whole bunch of Tracy's clothes that aren't supposed to go in the dryer. Because I'm so worried about getting my stuff done, I don't feel like I've got time to look at all the labels to figure out like what needs to be laid. For. I could, like, that's not, is that my job? Like, no, no, I have my concerns. And, and everything is shrunk. Not just the clothes, but my view is shrunk to just what I want and what I need and not what others around me might need from me. That's what sin does. It shrinks our view. It is anti-social. And as a result, instead of living lives of worship in everything, we turn moments that could be glorious moments of ministry into moments of anger and division. Right? Think, think about it. Those of you who are single, Maybe you have a roommate. Maybe you have some coworkers or some neighbors, friends even. What, what is it that you really seek from them? Right? Like, are, are, is your, are your interactions with your coworkers about what you can extract from them so you can get your job done and go home? Do you just, if your roommate would just the things in the dishwasher. Like he doesn't even have to turn the dishwasher on. Out of the sink, into the dishwasher. That's why they're there. Life would be better, but, but instead of yelling, maybe there was a ministry moment. Sir, you could care for the needs of others. Or think about it, those of you who are married, like, who is really getting in your way? Right? So often, so often we treat our spouses as, as if they are in the way of our happiness. And we run from them, or we bulldoze them, or we yell at them, or we give them the cold shoulder, and we think, you know what? If you would just get your act together, my life would be a lot easier. Just to say it out loud, though, right? Have you ever just said it out loud? Maybe the Lord has put you there not to get angry, but to minister, to serve, to reflect that you worship the Lord God of all in that moment and to give even as he has given to us. Maybe you are the one in the way. Maybe you can take the dishes and put them in the dishwasher. For parents, this is, this is where... This is where it kills me every time I think about it, right? 
You've survived another day. The children are still alive. Just a few bumps and bruises that Band-Aids can cure. You fed them more or less, more than Cheerios. You got them bathed, more or less, and they're in the bed. Finally, you and your spouse can catch up with that Netflix show that you've always been wanting to watch, and you haven't been 30 seconds into hitting play when you hear, Mom! Dad! And they start crying. And, and maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the only one who's been like, what did I tell you? It's bedtime. It's sleep. Like, don't bother. This is, why did God put you there? Why did God put me there? Like, the six-year-old who's got a tummy ache doesn't know what to do. You, the parent, know what to do. You are there not to turn moments of ministry into moments of anger, but to reflect that you are God's people who worship the Lord and you are willing to serve him, even if it means it costs you in how you relate to others. Even if it means you never really get to finish that Netflix show. They're going to cancel it after one season anyway. The last thing I want us to consider that we are his, and so we live for him. And if that feels heavy, because it is, but this is what makes it doable, we can trust him. Life is hard. Like It's easy to, to make an ideal world. Well, it'd be easy to serve people if I didn't have this chronic condition. It would be easy to serve people if my parents weren't aging and needed extra help. It would be easy to like it's we're tempted to look at all of the obstacles in the way of us living lives of worship. And we forget God is the Lord of all. The whole earth all of the cosmos, and there is not a thing that exists that is outside of his rule and his reign. And this great king of all is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and he is faithful to all generations. And if hardship and trial and difficulty has befallen you, it is not because he has forgotten. It is not because he's neglectful. And it's not because he's vindictive. We have this tendency to think of God as the sort of Lord who, if we do it all right, he'll be okay to us. And if we mess up, he's just waiting, like in the cartoons, to drop an anvil on our head. But this psalm says different. He is good. He is steadfastly loving and faithful for all generations, forever to the end. And there is a grace in these trials and difficulties that he's given you. They are as burdensome as they may be, as heart-wrenching as they may be. They are Find gifts from God to lead you and teach you more and more of what it means to live for him and not for the idols of this world. 
Maybe you've wondered, why has God put me with such sinful people? They're so difficult. Why indeed? To say it out loud answers the question. We are all in great need of sharpening and refining. But the thing is, you don't temper steel in the refrigerator. You don't refine gold lounging at the pool. The dross is burned away. The heat tempers the steel. And we grow more pure, more strong, more faithful in the furnace. And worship, worship isn't just a moment. It's not those big conversations. It's not just those big conferences or that once a week thing. Worship is is a lifestyle lived out and forged in all the little moments. Jesus said it this way, he who's faithful in little will be faithful in much. And sometimes we think just about these big things and we forget that God is the Lord all the time, in all the places, every second. He was Lord when he made all the things. And he created Adam and Eve in his own image. He was Lord when they disobeyed, rebelled, and fell. He was Lord when his people were enslaved in Egypt. He was Lord when he brought them out in victory. He was Lord when his people faced insurmountable odds in the promised land. He was Lord when his people in disobedience were dragged off into exile. He was Lord when there seemed to be hundreds of years of silence He was Lord when he himself was crucified. When he was dead and buried. And he was able to turn each one of those trials and tribulations. He was able to turn even the most wicked deed done by man, the crucifixion of the Son of God, into good. For it's in that moment he bore our frailty. He bore our guilt. He bore our shame, and he rose again from the dead as proof that this is not all there is. This steadfastly loving and faithful God is faithful for all generations, forever. And he is bringing his people to a better place. He is making them more and more like him. So what are the little moments of heat? and pressure that you're enduring right now? What is God teaching you in this difficult relationship you have at work? What is he showing you about yourself and himself in putting you together with a spouse who sees the entire world so differently from you? Could it be that God is showing you that you don't know it all and you don't see it all? Could he be humbling you to recognize that you are not God, but he is? Is he driving you parents to daily, moment by moment, prayer for your children because you just don't even know what to do, how to help, or what to say? Are you, as members of his body, this 
particular church in this place committed to what he is doing here and willing to look for opportunities to worship the Lord in your ministry to one another. Look, the point here isn't to relish difficulty or to seek out hardship or to pursue asceticism or or to get married or avoid marriage. The point is that Christ is Lord. And that means something for everything. We are not our own. We belong to him. And we take that truth into every relationship that we have. What is God doing in you, in us, to teach us to set him apart as Lord of all? Let's strive to live this life of worship together in him. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would lift Christ up before us, that we would see afresh and anew how worthy and glorious and mighty he is, that we would set him apart in our hearts as Lord. And that that reality would change the way we see our marriages, children, our parents, our co-workers, our neighbors, our friends. We can't do this, Lord. We need you to be at work. Work with might and with power to refine us, to be your people, the sheep of your pasture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.